Well, good evening, everyone. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. It is good to see y'all, whether y'all are here with us in the room or are joining us online tonight. Uh, welcome. We are going to continue um, journeying with Jesus. Um, we kind of began uh, this study back in August, uh, going from town to town. Uh, around where Jesus uh, lived and grew up and then ministered. And uh, tonight we're going to take a little bit of a different turn. We're still going to kind of be with Jesus, but we're kind of, how was Jesus in relationship to other people groups within Judaism? And we're going to, you know, we kind of went halfway there last week, both in land mass and people group with the Samaritans. And so today... We're going to go to the lovely people called the Pharisees. And whenever we hear Pharisee, we go, boo. If we've read the Bible at all, it's like, boo. But in, in Judaism, in, in Judah and in Galilee, when people heard Pharisee, for the most part, it's like, yay. These guys were like, awesome. And um, they were very, very well thought of people. And so it's going to be fun to kind of... Uh, deconstruct them and how we read scripture definitely should be impacted by what we uh, study tonight. So we're really looking forward to it. When we talk about God's word or kind of how it gets translated in the Old Testament as the law of God, y'all heard me say this before that the Psalms, Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119, they all, that's, that is the main focus of those Psalms. And so tonight, uh, we always, you know, for the most part, we begin our studies uh, each week with, a, with us praying through a psalm. We're going to pray through Psalm 19 tonight. And I just want you to notice, especially when we get to the second half of the psalm, how the psalmist is describing the way the Word of God is supposed to impact your life. And as we go through our study tonight, notice that that does not seem to be the case with the way that the Pharisees are handling the law of God. And so just notice that contrast as we uh, spend time together. Just want to remind you, you ready? That we are not here by chance, but that God has a purpose for us. And when we open God's word together, we should expect nothing less than for us to be changed by our time together tonight. So let it be. Let's pray. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, 
and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern his, their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me, that I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to begin a probably a couple week session on on the Pharisees. It's it's a huge group that we need to to consider based on what the Psalms just said. Who can discern their own faults? Do you discern your own faults very well? Now, wouldn't it be easier to say discern someone else's faults? That's a lot easier. I'm really good at that. What's the international symbol of doing that? Pointing at someone? Yeah. Yeah. Right? (laughs) So last week, we talked about the Samaritans, which were a minority that lived in Jesus' neighborhood, so to speak. When Jesus goes to travel south to Jerusalem, and remember, he grows up in Galilee, which is outside the country of Judah, outside the kingdom, at one point later Roman uh, province of Judea. It's like he grew up in New York and not Israel. But when he wants to make the trip south, and he does regularly for the festivals in Jerusalem, he's got a choice. He can take the three-day journey, which is up the mountains a little bit and then across the mountains through Samaria to Jerusalem, or you can do what most Jews do and go around Samaria. So you have to go down in the Jordan Valley and go an extra two days and then walk up the hill. When did you we, did get we learn all this last week? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> good job. Don't, don't, I, I never let you down, Kurt. No, you never did. You never Come did. On. So the, the, the Samaritans, you probably learned last week, were... There uh, you go. Uh, <laughs> were dinosaurs. They were a near extinct species that was still running around. If I could go back in time and look at the time of King David and pick a Israelite living at that time, let's say from the northern part of the country, put them in the time machine with me and take them forward to Jesus' day, they would be a Samaritan. They worshiped God in a way that was very old, but it was very much before David. Uh, Jerusalem to them was just a Canaanite city. It wasn't a holy city. It wasn't a place that God had any connection to. Uh, he, Moses never said anything about Jerusalem. So there was the tendency f- with the Jews later on to say, look, you Samaritans have missed it all. There's been a lot that's gone on. You may be part of our past, but you're irrelevant. Nobody cares. Um, we are the chosen. We Jews are the chosen people. You're not anymore. 
Your time is past. Jesus, on the other hand, and, and I know you went through this with Steve, was very careful, right, to include the Samaritans, the woman of the well, the good Samaritan story. When Jesus gives the Great Commission, what geographical areas does he tell the disciples to go to? Where does he tell them to go? Yeah, he mentions Samaria by name. And that's a huge deal. God does not forget his covenant, even with people that are sort of out of time. He made a covenant to the nation of Israel. He made a covenant with David and the Jews, and he's made a covenant with us. And so what the psalmist was warning about, it's hard to discern your own faults. The Jews said to the Samaritans, you're the old, we're the new. The Christians came along and said to the Jews, you're the old, we're the new. You see how the pattern sort of continues on and on? We have a way of saying, I didn't make those mistakes, you did. God doesn't care about it. I'm the new chosen people. Where Jesus was very consistent to say, uh, actually, I haven't forgotten anybody. I may expand the covenant, but I don't break covenants. That's your job, or that's your practice. So tonight, we're going to see that extended as we get into the discussion of the Pharisees. Now, the Samaritans are a minority. They were like seeing Amish or Quakers. I mean, they were people lost in the past. Uh, The Jews didn't particularly like them, but they were irrelevant. Pharisees, on the other hand, are one of the most powerful popular political cultural forces in the world that Jesus knows. Now, they're not particularly strong where he grew up. It's only as he said, head south, or he becomes so popular that some of them come north. But they are different kinds of rabbis, different kinds of Jews that he's grown up with. And so there's always going to be some natural friction uh, as there would be today if you took a New York Jew and put him with an Israeli Jew. Uh, They have different lives. So we need to put the Pharisees in some sort of context. They show up about 100 to 200 years before Jesus. And in order to get what they are, we have to sort of look back at the end of the Old Testament. Remember when the kingdom of Judah... Uh, strayed from God, uh, worshipped the Canaanite gods, Baal and Asherah, when they sacrificed their own children as burnt offerings, uh, God said, you're, you're done. You're absolutely done. I'm going to unmake you. And I will make you again, but we, we're going to start over from the ground up. So they go into exile. They began in exile in Egypt, and now they return to it, this time in Babylon. And the Bible covers this really well from Daniel on. They begin to change as a people. They now serve new masters, uh, first the Babylonians and later the Persians. And so their dress changes, their food changes, the place they live changes, their language changes. Uh, It's all different. And their kids are growing up in a world that they don't recognize. The kids are growing up in a world where they cannot read the Bible. They have no idea where Jerusalem was. They have no idea who Moses or what he did. So we've talked about this. What do the Jews living in exile desperately turn to? What do they try to do? 
yeah, they, they try to hold on to, to their scriptures. They invent this idea that we've got to have teachers, people amongst our community that still speak Hebrew. The Jews start to speak Aramaic. And we know this for certain because the Bible, for the first time in its history, changes languages. It had been in Hebrew all before Daniel. And suddenly there were whole chapters now in Daniel written in Aramaic. Aramaic is the language of the Babylonians. Long story, the Babylonians are not really Babylonians. They're faking it. They're really Arameans, and so their language is Aramaic. So that's what they start speaking. They will never stop speaking it uh, until after the destruction of the temple. This is the language of Jesus. So for centuries, this is what they're going to speak. But they don't want to lose their connection to the Bible. They want their kids to be able to understand it in the original language. So they start setting aside the most learned amongst them to be teachers, rabbis. And this rabbi's initial job is to teach the next generation what the scriptures mean. I think it's, it's an incredible model to follow for what we're doing today. To have uh, people dedicated uh, to teaching the next generation how to understand the Bible in a modern context. So let's jump ahead in history. The uh, Persians come into power. They defeat the Babylonians, and they return the Jews to their homeland. A lot of politics behind that, but we'll skip it tonight. So the Jews come back home. They've been gone for almost a century. How should they worship God? They can, on the one hand, go back to what they did before the exile. They can go back to the temple. They can go back to what's described in the Bible, just like it was under the kings. This is what they had done before. Or should they stick with this new system where they've got these rabbis that are teaching them what the Bible means? What would you do? I mean, everybody sort of loves scripture, right? Everybody wants to to do what the Bible says. So this is a major struggle and question in Judaism. Are we going to go back to what we did before? Or are we going to go with this thing that we've just made up? Now, history makes us so smart. Because in hindsight, we're all brilliant. But what would you have done? Honestly. You finally come home. There's nobody telling you what to do. You're just trying to figure this out. Uh, you know, you've had great leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah, and what did they rebuild? Yeah, a wall so we can protect ourselves, and they rebuild the temple. Um, Here, here's a good trivia question for you. Uh, under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, what made the Israelites weep? when they read the Bible to them. Because they had, because it, it had been in, in so many ways forgotten and set aside. And when they, they come back, they begin to rebuild things. They read it in a public, public setting and they start to weep because this is what gives them life. It's beautiful. So one of the things the Bible says is that the leaders of the nation of Israel 
part of them, uh, should be from the line of Moses, from the, the, the tribe of Levi, from the house of Aaron. So if you're born into that family, depending on where you're born, you're either going to be a Kohen priest, which are the, the priests that serve at the temple, the high priests, or you could be a Levi, which we know those that show up in the New Testament. These are more the temporary priests. They serve uh, for a rotation period, and uh, they're, they're spread out all over the country, and they're really designed to help people. So you've got to be born into those families. It's not something you can just decide to be one day. You have to be born into it. The Pharisees, and I'm getting ahead of myself, the the group that comes from the exile saying we should keep to this teacher-rabbi system, they say, you know, it's maybe not the best idea just to have people that are born to certain families. Why don't we have those that are most educated? Later, and I'm jumping ahead, but the, the Pharisees, who are big champions of the rabbi system, they'll say, it's much better to have uh, a learned momster. Now, we have to go back there. Uh, if you can remember when we taught on that. You know me, I love to teach on bad words. And this is probably the worst thing you could call somebody in Hebrew. A momster. So wash my mouth out with soap. It's worse than a Caleb, worse than a dog. A momster is a person born against God's law. So someone born out of incest, uh, someone that was raped by a Roman, for example. Uh, Unfortunately, Jesus is called this in the Talmud. He's called a momster. But the Pharisees say it's it's better to have a learned momster than an ignorant high priest. So think about what they're saying. It's better to have a bastard who knows the Bible than some guy born into a family that doesn't know anything. Now, is that the world described in the Old Testament? It is not. This is a change. This is a massive egalitarian push where the leadership now of the religion can be open to anybody. All that is required is that you really study, you really know, you have a real education. It is a meritocracy. This is very different from the time of David and Moses uh, where it was your lineage that mattered. And as much as we think, "Ah, that's Old Testament, who cares? That's what scripture literally said. So which would you go with? Rabbi system, temple system. How about both? Because <laughs> that's what happens. Yes, it is. Um, although people tend to compromise well, don't we? <laughs> there is as much political division back then as there is now. And people like Jesus definitely split the baby. Although Jesus is mainly rabbinic and he's a little bit temple. Um, there, there is massive struggle uh, between the two camps, which, which is right, which is going to win. So when we talk about the Sadducees hating the Pharisees, this is what we're talking about. The Sadducees, and we'll talk about them in their own night, are the priestly class. 
These are what we would consider nobles. They are born into the tribe of Levi, into the family of Moses. And so they have a promise from God since the Exodus that they will be priests. And they're saying, look, I don't care what happened in the exile. That was a mistake. We're getting back to biblical principles, period. In fact, they will say, if it's not the first five books of the Bible, we don't care. We're just doing what Moses said. Don't make up a bunch of other stuff. This is what it says, period. This other group comes along, and it's, it's much bigger than the Pharisees. So I really want to get that across to you tonight. Sadducees. Bigger than the Sadducees. No, it's, it, well, the rabbinic movement is the other side. That's right. So the rabbinic movement is not just the Pharisees. Right. The Pharisees are a branch of the rabbinic movement. Jesus is part of the rabbinic movement. Mm-hmm. He is not a Sadducee. He's never, he goes to the temple, he does his thing, but he's never a priest or anything like that. This rabbinic movement will come from parts mainly outside of Judea, outside of Jerusalem, except for the Pharisees. So let me, let me back up a little further. Uh, the Jews are first very close in power to the Persians. Remember Cyrus the Great in Isaiah is actually called a messiah. Now he was a Persian king and he was a dog. He was a dictator murdering thug. But the Bible still calls him a Mashiach because he, his choosing on the part of God was to return the Jews to Israel, to Judah. So he does that. Um, he had coins made that said that he was Cyrus, the Messiah. You know who's the second person in history they did this for? <laughs> Donald Trump, I guess. It's Donald Trump. <laughs> because he moved the capital to uh, acknowledge the capital of Israel yeah. was Jerusalem. Yeah. So Cyrus the Great and Donald Trump. T- take that for what it's worth. So, um, the Greeks under Alexander the Great come along and they wipe the Persians out. If, if you know your Western history, it was a great battle. He chased them all the way from Greece into Egypt, uh, across uh, what is Iraq today, into Afghanistan, all the way to the Indian border. It was, it was incredible. Um, what do you think the Greeks are going to think of the Jews? Who were they allied with? The Persians. The enemies. So it did not go well under uh, the Greeks for the, the Jews. I won't get into all this history because we'll be here all night, but there was a group of Jewish rebels. We call them in Hebrew the Hashemians. In Greek, we call them the Maccabees. Uh, they revolt Judas the Hammer, Judas Maccabeus. It's a great name, sounds like a wrestler, Judas the Hammer. Uh, he is sick of the Greeks. The Greeks bring in their culture, and we famously call it Hellenism, and it really began to change the world in terms of how you build cities, how you build buildings, how you run governments, how you organize religion. What language is the New Testament written in? Greek. Uh, We'll call the Pharisees Pharisees, even though that's not their name, because it's in Greek. We say they go to synagogues. What's not? They go to um, um, 
um, Beit Knesset, um, but we call her by a Greek name. Greek begins to replace Aramaic as a language. The Greeks stipulated that all of their empire needed to have one language, one religion, one government, one everything. So they tried to outlaw Judaism. The first antichrist mentioned in the Bible is one of these Greek kings. We talked about him before. He burns Torahs. He takes pigs into the temple. Uh, he outlaws Judaism. If he catches a mother that circumcised her son, he kills the child and hangs it around her neck. The Jews had it. They fought off in a guerrilla warfare, the Greeks. Now, they didn't really beat them. This is uh, the Seleucids, uh, just a branch of the the successor states to Alexander. It's more like Vietnam. It just became too costly to to fight them. And so the Greeks just left. So for a small period of time, the kingdom of Judea was independent. These Maccabeans, these Hashemians, become kings. Now, they're not of the line of David. There are no more royal line descendants. Um, There's the tribe of David, sure, uh, but... There's no family left of David. So these Hashemians say, okay, we're kings. We're going to rule because God has given us this victory. This is what's the story behind Hanukkah. But these Jewish kings that began to fight to drive off the Greeks suddenly started to change. And they started to act Greek. Now, it's really hard for us to appreciate the cultural pressure uh, that Hellenism was bringing. I mean, think today how much of our world is still influenced by Greek thinking that passed into Roman thinking that passed into Western thinking. I mean, can I find any evidence of Greek thought in America today? We have a what in our kind of government do we have? We have a republic, a Roman word for a Greek concept. We're a democracy, um, Greek concept. If I go to Washington, what are the buildings like? Greek. Uh, there's a little Roman mixed in. I mean, it, it, it was such a, uh, an impulse. And so this second level of debate begins in Judaism. Shouldn't we modernize Shouldn't we become civilized like the Greeks? Everybody that's not a savage is Greek. In fact, our word barbarian comes from someone who doesn't speak Greek. That's how the Greeks view the world. Greeks and barbarians. And the Jews said, we don't want to be barbarians. But there was a part of Judaism that said, we don't need this. This is just the next line of people to come in. They're going to pass away. We have the word of God. We can rely on that. And that alone. So you now have these kings that are pushing Hellenism versus part of the Jewish culture that's saying, yes, we accept it. And part of it saying, no, no, we don't accept it. And then you have this other debate going on. Should we have worship the way we did before we went to exile? And do we uh, instead hold to the rabbinic system? And we even got to the Romans yet. So society is, is, is fighting, it's, it's pushing hard. There arises about 150 BC, uh, so a little bit, century and some change before Jesus shows up, a political party that is very much resistant to becoming more Greek. They call themselves the separated. 
the Purushim, those that choose to be separate from modern society, modern Greek ideas. They're uh, sort of super Jewish patriots. They don't want to give up their culture. They hate the Jewish monarchy. They hate the priests, nobles. They are a middle-class merchant movement. And these are the Pharisees. So where would you be in all those debates? Do you want rabbinic Judaism? Do you want temple Judaism? Do you want to be more Greek? Do you want to be less Greek? Where would you go? It's not so simple. The Pharisees had this idea that at the end of the day, the way we're going to make our country better is if we have better people. In many ways, Pastor Steve and I were talking, they're like early Methodists. John Wesley starts a reform movement for the Church of England. Now, did the Church of England have particularly a good leader? Nope. Remember who started the Church of England? Henry VIII, the original founder of marital counseling. I mean, he, uh, there was never a marriage he couldn't fix one way or another, right? And uh, it doesn't get better uh, after him. I mean, they're not as violent, but th- these are not paragons of virtue. So that affects the church. I mean, it's a state church. It's a government church. You're loyal to the church because you're loyal to the country. It's not, it's not really what Jesus laid out. So Wesley has this idea, right? If we practice holiness, if we change as people, if we become more Christ-like, it's going to change the church, which will change our country. Now, in Wesley's case, I think it worked. It worked, it worked in a huge way. The Pharisees had the same idea. They don't want the priests just to be holy. There's a lot of laws for how the priests have to behave in order to go to the temple. That's what the law says. But the Pharisees said, you know what? Why should it just be those people that are trying to be holy? We all should do it. And we'll get into this, but um, how many times did Moses command his people to fast? Never. He never asked them to fast. There's sort of a little clue, maybe, and it's, it's a definite maybe, on the Day of Atonement, it says that you should deny yourself like you would on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees said, you know what? That could be fasting. And what they, they say is, look, but Pastor Stephen always are on this. Um, our original command from God is avad and shamar. We are to bring forth life and we are to protect it. So that second part they get really excited about, the shamar. The protection they have is this idea that you're going to build a fence, uh, literally a, uh, a thorn bush fence around something. So you don't want to like get right to the edge of violating God's law, Right? You want a little little leeway, a little gray area. So even if you go over, you don't violate it. So they said, this is the way it works. Uh, on the Day of Atonement, it's probably the priests that are supposed to deny themselves, but mm, I think we all should do it. And in case we're wrong, we probably should do it more than just once a year. I mean, isn't it a good idea? So we're actually going to do it twice a week. 
What's, <laughs> what's, what's wrong with that? It's just more of a good thing, right? Mm. And I'm jumping ahead. It took them a long time to get to two days. I mean, so it, it moved from one. But they're trying to get people to be very different, to be really Jewish. This isn't just we have a King David now and we have priests. We know if our faith is going to survive, it's got to be all of us doing this. We've got to teach our kids what the Bible means and how they can do it in modern day. It's hard to understand the Bible. It was hard for them. And so they have learned specialists that are designed to to do this. There's about 6,000 of them um, by the revolt in 70 AD, which tells us it is a large force. It is not the majority but again, they're middle class. They're very wealthy. And we sort of know this. Uh, who is the most famous Pharisee we know? Nope. Who's the most famous Pharisee? Paul. And what did Paul's family do? Yeah, they sold black goat hair tents. They were in business. So in many ways, he's kind of the arch type of these Pharisees. Now, about 100 BC, these, these Hashemian kings are trying to do away with the Pharisees. They're a political force that threatens them. The Pharisees are not happy with them. So Pompey, who was a Roman general, and I know we're doing a lot of history here, but as Rome's republic was coming to an end, they had three leaders, a triumvirate. These are would-be dictators. You have Julius Caesar, a guy named Cassius, who was in the wrong room, and Pompey. Pompey was older, uh, was seen as a greater general, but Caesar kept beating him up. So he goes east, where he had had military victories. He had a lot of uh, allies. This is the entry of Cleopatra, if you know that whole story. When Pompey is in the east, he's taking up territories to try to raise money to fight Caesar. He goes to Jerusalem, and in the middle of the night, as the Jews are trying to fight the Romans off, the Pharisees sneak down at night and open the gates to let in the Romans. Because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They so wanted to be rid of these new kings that are making them more Greek, that are corrupting them, that they invited the Romans in. Now, one of the things you're going to see about the Pharisees, they're not a monolithic group, any more than the rabbinic movement is monolithic. There's different segments. There are segments later on of the Pharisees that vehemently hate the Romans. But there was a part of them that said, they're better than the Hashemian kings. They're better than these priests that will rule over us. So this is what I mean. These questions, they're hard, but when people get stuck in them, it gets, it gets desperate. So Jesus is coming from a rabbinic tradition in Galilee. He grew up going to synagogue. A synagogue is not in the Bible, but it's a place that men go to study Torah. It's an educational system where you learn Bible. He does go to temple um, in Jerusalem, but he is not part of this Pharisee tradition that builds a shamar, a wall that's so big uh, that it gets out of hand. So his first 
conflict is going to be uh, with these Pharisees over what is the Bible. So let me stop there. That's a massive amount of history that I shoved into. Not a short enough time, but hopefully short enough. Does that make sense? Questions? Um, Pharisees started with good intentions. Um, yeah, just ponder for a second some traumatic things that have happened in your life. And what links would you go within your control to make sure it never happened again? That is why the Pharisees are who they are. When you are exiled out of your country, and it's like, what has just happened to us? And that you get to come back. I don't ever want that to happen again. And so the Pharisees get a bad rap. But Pastor Kurt said, their intentions began good. How can we be faithful to God so that that never happens to us again? So just be, notice how I said that. How can we be faithful to God so that will not happen again? Exile, right? So that we can be a people. How can that happen? And that is kind of where we are landing. And man, Kurt made a good point this morning or this afternoon. He said, who did you, growing up, who did you fight with the most? Probably not your neighbors. Yeah, who said brothers? Yeah, yeah, your brothers. And that, that is definitely seems, that seems to, to be the thing that ultimately gets uh, Judah's goat in the end is they can't get unified. They hate each other. And because they hate each other, the Romans conquer them and burn down the temple. It's a disaster. But Jesus will fight with the Pharisees. And I don't want to pull any punches because yeah. he, he unloads on them. Yeah. Um, the likes of which he never does to other people. But again, I think it's fighting with your brother. It's not the kid down the street. It's not the bully that you fight. It's your brother yeah. because you see them more. This is the closest group to who Jesus is growing up. But they're, they're going off the rails. And he, he is very upset about it. So I think we're going to look at the scripture. Yeah, we're going to look at the scripture. And so uh, if you'll open your Bibles to, to Mark chapter 2, um, the end of it. So kind of keep in your mind, the Pharisees are master hedge builders, shamar builders. They, 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 go, they take this shamaring to a, an extreme. Yeah. Um, and this is what... <laughs> How many times have we engaged in something good or seen somebody engage in something good and that thing is a end in and of itself? Like fasting. Good thing? Sure. But not for fasting's sake. The, any, of the, any of the what we would call in our tradition the means of grace, they're not an end in of themselves. They are a means to connect with God, right? It is the connection with God that is the critical thing. So they build all these, these, uh, uh, these hedges around the law, all these layers upon layers, because they don't want to break the law. They don't want this to happen again. And there's all sorts of examples in the New Testament. The one... Thing that gets on Jesus' nerves the most about the Pharisees is what they pile onto people relative to the Sabbath. Sabbath keeping. All 
all these rules. Like even you'll go to New York today. And guess what you can't push when you go into an elevator on the Sabbath in New York? Button. You can't push the buttons. That's, that is work. And so what's more work? Pushing a button or having to wait on every floor on the way up? <laughs> I vote on the every floor on the way up. Yeah. What about you, Pastor Kurt? So here we go. And so here, uh, here this, this tension starts. Verse 23, chapter 2. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisee said to him, Look, why are you doing what is why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? So these people know the word of God, right? They know it backwards, forwards, and sideways. So who else does Jesus quote scripture to in the Gospels? Uh, the devil. <laughs> and so here we go. Uh, he calls them brood of vipers, Pastor Kurt. It's bad. It, 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 and that sounds kind of funny to us, uh, brood of vipers, but that is like one of those Caleb words. It's like one of the worst things because he's calling them the son of the devil, right? He answered, have you ever read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God. Uh, who was he running from? Saul. He was running from Saul, and he, he and his men were hungry. He entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath wasn't this, I mean, we could talk about Sabbath all night and tomorrow and everything, but the Sabbath, when you go back to Genesis chapter 1, do you ever ponder it like this? That the Sabbath is the first, or God, or God resting, and then that being the precursor to Israel resting, that is one of the things that set them apart, is they stopped that stopping, that's literally what the word Sabbath or Shabbat means. It means to stop. Is the first expression of God's holiness in the scripture. Stopping. Because when we stop, we allow God to be God in our lives on God's terms. We get to observe the gifts that God has placed in front of us through his creation and we get to take a deep breath right well but how do you really do that on the Sabbath how do you really rest can you do laundry I mean should you should you do laundry should you take your kids to sporting events I mean what, what do you do to rest how do you know the Pharisees started off saying, yeah, this is complicated. Right. <laughs> we don't know. Um, so why don't we ask people that know this stuff? Why don't we ask the rabbis that have studied Hebrew, know the history. They know more about this than we do. You know, go to the pastor. Ask him. What, what, what can I do on, on a Sabbath? Um, it, it, all it says, like Steve said, is a stop. Well, maybe that's fine for Moses, but I have no idea what that is for today. 
And so literally you have for generation after generation, people saying, oh, can I mow the yard? No. Um, this is called halakha in Hebrew. They have rulings. Um, can I feed the dog? Yes. Can I uh, walk the dog? No. And so all of these, can I, can I, can I, can I, and it turns into this massive list over a while. And so, man, we'll, we'll go to town on the Pharisees. Who pushed blue laws in our country? Hmm? Yeah, Christians. What kind of Christians? Methodists. Who passed temperance in our country? Methodists. We know what alcohol does. We know if you have a lot of distractions on Sunday, you won't go to church. So we've kind of done the same things, right? We create these laws to make it easier for you to do the right thing. The warnings about Pharisees, they're not just to teach us to hate Jews. I really think they're designed to protect us as Christians from this natural tendency to turn the relationship of God into rules. Yeah. And they can start easy, folks. They really do the best intentions. But before long, we start doing the steps and forget the purpose. Like Jesus said, the purpose of the Sabbath is for people. I want you to rest. People were not created to maintain the tradition of the Sabbath. We can't get that out That's of right. order. Right. And man, we do that all the time. Pastor Steve and I get questions about, can, can I be baptized? Uh, I was baptized as a kid. Can I baptize again? And that's a really hard question because the teaching of Methodism is no, 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 no. If you were baptized once, uh, you shouldn't do it again. It's offensive to God, my paraphrase. But then part of me wonders, are we doing the same thing? Are we saying, forgetting the main point is to have a better relationship with God? I mean, it's, it gets so sticky-wicky. Um, who can serve communion in our church? Hmm? No, no, I mean, who, who can give it to you? Consecrate it. Consecrate it. <laughs> we may not have been born in the tribe of Levi, but we were selected afterwards. Um, we're, we're, we're very important and special, so screw you. Um, no. Uh, well, maybe not. <laughs> But doesn't it turn into that a little bit? I mean, these things, oh, dirty Pharisees. Uh, we got to learn. Um, and the answers are not just black and white. I mean, Jesus designed us to choose, right? We've got to keep the main thing the main thing. That's right. We want to have a better relationship with God. He's given us tons of tools to do that. But we can't get lost in the tools or obsess about the details of the tools till all we're doing is running a tool shop and not approaching God. Yeah. So we got a video clip for you uh, that kind of illustrates all this very well. It's from The Chosen. Uh, we showed you a couple of clips last week. But uh, he take, they take this story and they put the story in Mark 3 actually in front of it, the beginning of Mark 3 in front of it. And so uh, let's watch and just try to pick up on all the nuance of what Pastor Kurt and I have been sharing with you tonight. Let's watch.
You've been to the synagogue, Rabbi? No, I have not. Why this synagogue, Rabbi? It's not on any of our maps. That's a good question. Have you noticed that no matter where we go recently, we are more and more misunderstood? Definitely. It's a very complicated time. It grieves me that Mary was not welcomed at the synagogue in Jericho when she first arrived in distress. They turned her away. She didn't mention it. Come on, she's a woman. She didn't expect their help. But she needed it. Add to that John's arrest. I should say I'm feeling nostalgic for a small town. No one. Of the Lord. Small town. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. The monster I was talking about. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way. Shalom. Even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with what? Excuse me, what are you doing? What is your name? Elam. Your friend Elam has a withered hand. Are you here? It is not lawful to heal on Sabbath. Which one of you who has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out? Are you to speak to our congregation in such a way? How much more value is this man than a sheep? Come here. Come stand here. It's okay. Elam Sittas. We don't know this person. He could be a shaman. Is it lawful on Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? This affliction does not threaten his life. It does not even affect his health. Everything. Wait! Come back! 
that term yeah it it means he is god he is the second power in heaven the title of son of man seems to upset a lot of people why tell you later <laughs> so thank you what do you want to do so um we only have just about five minutes left. And so I want to encourage y'all to ponder something. <laughs> the, the Pharisees had fallen off the wagon insofar as that they had taken their desire to do the right thing and they got confused. That, that quote that Jesus has, I desire what? Mercy and not sacrifice. So, you know, inside of every one of us lives a little Pharisee. And it's that temptation that we have to say, what do we say? To point the finger. And to say, no, that person is the problem. And if that person will just get it a little more right, then they're worthy of my attention 
They're worthy of being blessed. You fill in the blank. We all have that little Pharisee in it. And we got to learn to identify it before it turns into a big one. Right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, I think, says it like this. Uh, Do not judge unless you will be judged. Or you will be judged, right? And so when you kind of... You try to point, get that finger pointed out like that. Just stop. Are you connected to God in that moment? What is God actually calling you to? You're you're actually being called to be a mediator of kindness and mercy, and not judgment. Now, there's certainly moments that we need to be in relationship with each other where judgment is important. This is kind of some teaching that Jesus is calling us to a different way of living and being with one another that is true shamaring and true avad and shamar. It is bringing life and protecting it, not keep keeping people from getting to life in the first place. Yeah. When God said rest, should you go out to your farm and work all day? No. You really should rest. So you can see how that rule started, right? You, you can't farm on the Sabbath. You really shouldn't. You should rest. But that turned into, if you're starving, you can't eat, which is not the point of it, right? It's, it's these rules, like Steve was saying, the little Pharisee comes out, and we want to tell people, do this, don't do that. But we don't want to give up the love of Scripture, the desire the Pharisees had to make Scripture relevant. One of the things that we benefit from them is that everybody uh, can have a relationship with God. Right. That didn't start with the church. It started with them. It started with the rabbinic movement. The, the whole relationship of God started to change. So it, it, it's not all bad. There are many Pharisees that will accept Jesus' message, and we'll talk about them. Uh, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, there's others in Acts that, that really do get him, uh, get that this is coming. And so it's so important for us to, to not throw out. Is the Sabbath important at all? But how much do we really act like that? Do we really rest on Saturday so that we can worship on Sunday? Or do we just do different work on Sunday or different work on Saturday? And I'm talking to myself. Is our society today better because we work all the time? It's really not. Um, so there, there is a balance. We, we can't turn it into rules, but we have to keep mindful. What's the end goal? Like Steve said, where, you know, where is this going? What does God want? He gave us these instructions so that we can get to a better place with him. We should never, ever lose that like the Pharisees did. So we've talked a lot. Questions tonight? Confusions, comments? We love your questions, Richard. I don't want to be in trouble over there. Hey, Kurt's already said to. <laughs> You're good, man. <laughs> if God never tires, and if this has been on my mind since I've read it, so if he never tires, what do you take the day off for? <laughs> 
Yeah. Kurt has a great, great yeah. reflection on this. So that, there's a rabbi that I'm a fan of called Rabbi Foreman. He's alive today. And his command of Hebrew is, is true mastery. You know, I, I, I can barely stand in the same room with a guy. Um, but as he explains it, and really as you look at the Hebrew for, for stopping, uh, for Shavuot, for, for not working, it's the end of the creation process. So his creating... The last step of it is the Shabbat, the, the stopping. So it's sort of like an artist who's painted something, and an artist stepped back, and he looks at the painting. And there's that moment of, my creation is, is finished, I'm looking at it. Um, if an artist just paints it and throws it away, they would say that's not completing. So the only reason we can think of to rest in English is because because our power has run out. Where in Hebrew, it really says, this is the last act of creation. And in a sense, God wants that for our life, right? You live a life, and you're just doing and doing and doing. But if you stop for a moment and look back, what did I do today? Why, why did I do that? Or I did that. That's really good. It's that reflection, that understanding. I'm creating, and I'm responsible for my choices that Shabbat really implies. So... Do I? I'm deaf. So, was it really rest? It was just reflect. Yeah, that's where language is killing us. And in Hebrew, it, right. it really is reflection, uh, appreciation. Yeah, God didn't run out of steam. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Good question. Yeah, we always could do good stuff. So Jesus always makes me feel better. And a lot worse, too. <laughs> so, well, I guess we'll be tackling some of Matthew 20, 23. Yeah, Matthew 23 uh, next week, if y'all want to get a head start. Uh, this is when Jesus completely comes uncorked on the Pharisees. And uh, it's those seven woes. If you want to read, read up on those, uh, man. And remember, before you dog on the Pharisee, ask yourself the question. Where is the little Pharisee in me? Mm -hmm. That's good. Right, let's pray. Father, our God, we thank you for your word tonight. That we are afforded the book to help us to understand. That you, as a loving God, have worked with all sorts of people for the longest time. And you don't give up on us. When we twisted it and misunderstood, you came even closer to us as we know that you seek to do tonight. Father God, we have your word, and we know it is the greatest answer that we will ever receive. Understanding it and applying it to our life is what will give us life. The Christ we will experience comes from the Christ we discover in these pages. So Father, may it be real for us. We know we can only change this world by changing our own heart, changing our own life. So we pray in our country that we would continue to be the Christians you've called us to be. Lord, we know we were blessed because we gave ourselves to you. And now too many of us want to give themselves to the world or to something else. Father, it scares us. It makes us angry. It makes us want to turn back the clock or make them be like we think they should be. Father, may we ever remember the Pharisee and their desire to be closer to you. They pushed people away from you.
because the people were having to do what they thought best instead of what you said. Help us never to get into that with our kids, with our friends, our family, even with ourselves. You love us and seek to do whatever it is to save us, to bring us home. Help us to accept that, to listen with intense and love for what you ask us to do. But when we mess up, may we know that there is grace from you. You love us as a parent always does. And you seek for all of your people, Samaritans, Jews, Pharisees, Christians, all to come home. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Grace of peace.